scripture reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 60 through 71. It can be found on page 892 in the Black Bibles. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Sarah and Jack, so much. And good morning to you. Uh, welcome to Christ the King. My name is Clay Holland. I'm an associate pastor here. Glad to be worshiping with you this morning. If you're new to Christ the King, welcome to you. Um, one of the things that we believe in this church is exactly what it was that uh, Peter just confessed, that we have nowhere else to go other than Jesus, any of us, um, because only he has the words of eternal life. So let's look um, at the words of Jesus and the words uh, of, of, of his scriptures now um, and, and seek him in it. Let me pray for us. Your word, O Lord, is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Holy Spirit, we pray that you administer your word to us now and help us to see our Savior clearly. In his name, amen. Well, maybe you have sat at some point in your life on the other side of the table from the doctor in that meeting. If you haven't, I'm sure you have known or loved someone who has who hears those two most dreaded words, two of the most dreaded words in all of the English language, which are, it's cancer. It's cancer. You know, if you ever hear those words, that your life is going to change. If you're married and you hear those words in connection to your spouse, you know your marriage is going to change. If you are a parent and you hear those words in the context of one of your children, you know that your whole family life is really going to change. And these are two horrible, horrible, horrible words to hear. But here's another question. What if you don't hear those words? What if you have a cancer growing in your body and your doctor knows it but decides for whatever reason simply not to tell you? Maybe they don't want to make you feel bad, right? Um, you know, maybe they think, oh, it would just be better if they didn't know. I don't want to upset anybody, that sort of thing. Well, there is a word for a doctor who knows that you have a cancer growing in your body and refuses to tell you. And that word is malpractice. It's 
malpractice. Why? That doctor has taken an oath. It's taken an oath to disclose to you information that affects your health, even if, I'd say especially if, that information is painful or unpleasant to hear. You would never, you might do this. I'm just going to counsel you against this. You would never knowingly go to a doctor who only told you exactly what it is that you wanted to hear. We want our doctors to tell us the truth, and then we want them to walk with us in the consequences of that truth, right? Well, today we we finally come to the end of John chapter 6. Now, John chapter 6, as one chapter of the Bible, could be an entire sermon series unto itself. In fact, I have 15 different sermons for this, like like these 10 verses that we read. I'm only going to preach 10 of them. I'm just going to preach one of them. There's a whole lot here. There's a whole lot here. Um, But it's the culmination of Jesus speaking a lot of hard truth. That's what it is. And a lot of that truth at points is unpleasant. But the consequence of either rejecting or accepting the teaching of Jesus here is dire and consequential. I would say it is even ultimate. So let's look at it now. We're going to look at it now under two headings. First, the challenge of belief, the challenge of belief. And second, the challenge to believe. So first we see the challenge of belief. Now, I don't want to bury the lead here, so I'm going to state it on the front end, what this challenge of belief is, and then we'll kind of work our way through this passage. The challenge in embracing and following Jesus from this passage, there are a lot of others in other places too, but from here is this. Jesus must become your life. Jesus must become your life. To embrace and follow Jesus means to give up sovereignty over your own life and give that sovereignty over to him. Simply put, Jesus must become your life. I think that that is a summary statement of all of Jesus' teaching in John chapter 6. And we're going to walk through some of the what is previous to our passage here, to be reminded of it. I would encourage you, if you haven't already done so, to listen to John's last two sermons where he walked through some of this other hard teaching. Because we see, at first, the the consequences of all of this teaching. First, in verse 60 of our passage, uh, John reports that the disciples started grumbling about hearing all of the teaching, like, whoa, this is really tough. I don't really like this, but I thought he was going to give us some more food, Right? Um, And in verse 62, after he gives one more bit of really, really tough teaching, that was too much for people. And the text says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, parenthetical quick aside, because I think this is important, because I was really confused about this growing up. So maybe you are too, and you just haven't said anything about it. Um, There is a difference in the Bible between one of the 12 disciples that Jesus picked out and chose, they're also known as apostles, and the general disciples that are talked about in this text. There are a whole uh, disciple in this text, if it's not used to refer to the 12, and John does notate that when it is, is talking about anybody who is following Jesus around listening to his teaching, watching him perform miracles, and generally speaking, just following him from place to place. These are most likely a lot of people who only the day before had been listening to Jesus teach and had gotten an awesome lunch 
that, 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 that fed 5,000 men plus all of the women and children. And because of that, they continued to go and look for him. So they're general disciples. And when they heard the challenges of Jesus, starting in verse 22, they started to get confused. And they started to grumble. And then when they heard his teaching in, in, in verse 62, they'd have enough. So here's a recap of the claims that Jesus makes in chapter 6 that ultimately pushed these disciples, these people who were following him, away from him. And let's go ahead and apply this to ourselves because this is written down for us to put ourselves in this story too. It's not just about them, it's also about us. So first, first hard teaching. Jesus challenges our motivations for hanging around with him. Jesus challenges our motivations for hanging around with him. In verse 26, the people who had been recipients of his miraculous feeding just the day before looked up one day and saw that Jesus wasn't there. And they went to find him. And when they found him, they said, hey, Jesus, when did you get here? And he didn't answer that question. You'll notice in the Gospels a lot, Jesus never doesn't answer the question that people ask him because he's got other things that he wants to say. And here he did as well. Jesus said this. You are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, Jesus is saying, you're wanting to be with me because you think that I can give you something cool in your life. But that thing was supposed to push you to something greater, to faith actually in me. It's easy for us to have an agenda and to try to force Jesus into it rather than to submit our agendas to him or to submit to his agenda which is to give his life as a ransom for many and to transform us into those who live lives of sacrificial love. So when Jesus refuses to be co-opted into our agendas or any other agenda that is other than his, he offers us back challenging teaching. That was offensive teaching number one. Offensive teaching number two is this. Jesus claims that God is sovereign over your salvation and that he, Jesus, is the agent of that salvation. That's in verse 37. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And so everybody standing there and us are all going, what? Are, are, are you saying that there's an aspect of my life that I'm not in control over? Even my own salvation? That there's an authority that is greater than me, and it even applies to my relationship with God? And Jesus is saying, yes, that is what I'm saying. And that's offensive teaching number two. Offensive teaching number three is that Jesus claims to be greater than Moses. Now, that was probably more offensive to them than it is to us. But starting in verse 32, Jesus claims that one of the great heroes of the Jewish faith is subservient to the person that was standing in front of them at that moment teaching them. And that all of the awesome things that Moses did, including being the mediator between the people of Israel and God, where God provided them manna to eat, was simply pointing to Jesus. He says that, 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 that Moses gave you manna in the desert and the people ate it and they died. But if you feed on me, you will live, Jesus says. Later on in the Gospel of John, Jesus is more explicit. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now that's offensive teaching. That's offensive teaching number three. 
Offensive teaching number four. There's a lot of it here, you see. Jesus states that we must eat his flesh and drink his blood to have eternal life. Now, he was not being literal there, but he was being metaphorical, although he was hinting at the meal that we will celebrate at the end of this service in communion. He is essentially making the point and reiterating the teaching um, that, that we don't come to Jesus uh, to get things from him. We come to him simply because he is our life and the only path to eternal life and you cannot have that life without embracing him by faith so jesus says all of this in the span of 37 verses and people start to grumble and he hears their grumbling and he adds the 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 zinger i guess in verse 37 I mean, in, in, in verse 62, and basically says this, look, if you find all of this other teaching, you know, hard to swallow, hard to deal with, well then, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now, for the disciples who are following Jesus, that statement right there was one step too far, and many of them left him and abandoned him and walked away from him. I find that to be confusing. Like, A, why does Jesus talk about the ascension? And B, why does that make people so mad? I think there are two things going on here. The first is this. While Jesus teaches more about the ascension later, and the ascension is when Jesus, after his resurrection, left this earth and physically and bodily rose to to sit at the right hand of God the Father in heaven as the Apostles Creed says he talks about that more later it's an event that doesn't even happen until it's not even recorded until the book of Acts there's no denying that Jesus is making a claim here that where he was before was with God the Father it's a claim to deity here it's an it's an implicit teaching on the Trinity and this too much was this this right here was way too much for those early disciples. Like you, you you're saying like that you were you're God. It's what they're thinking, and they that that's a no go. And so they depart him. The claim also points to a path that for Jesus that is about a lot more than just giving us. Um, what we want on this earth. And, and he's glad that they get this message because he wants us to get this message too. Because to get to the point of the ascension, Jesus has to go through a path of horrible suffering. Before he ascends into heaven, he's arrested, he's tortured, he dies on the cross, he rises again on the third day, and then he ascends into heaven. And so Jesus is saying that to have a relationship with God to live our lives in the realm of true truth, like reality, actual reality, that you have to believe this and you have to embrace this. You have to walk into an entire new story of reality that gives up your sovereignty over your own life and gives it wholly to him. And for some of them at the time, and maybe even for some of us now, even some of us here, this may just be too much. Because Jesus is demanding a surrender of our sovereignty to his sovereignty. He's demanding that you and I come to grips with the fact that just because we are here worshiping him, it does not mean that we are spiritually superior or smarter or holier than anybody else. He's demanding that you and I come to grips with the fact that he has 
never, nor will he ever, allow his agenda to be co-opted by any other agenda. But the massive grace of this challenge, this massive grace of this challenge of belief is this. He doesn't hide it from you. He's not hiding it from us. He tells you right here that eternal life is found in surrendering sovereignty over your life to him who is indeed God. It's a hard teaching. It's a hard teaching. But it's not a secret teaching. It's not a hidden teaching. I've always enjoyed books by Michael Lewis. My favorite book of his that I've read is The Big Short, which is also a movie. Um, it's, it's about the factors that led to the financial meltdown in 2007 and 2008, particularly about the people in finance who saw it coming way before it happened and acted on it several years before it happened, even in the midst of like uh, people pushing back against them. This is always Michael Lewis's thing. You know, most of his books are about people who buck the trends of groupthink and then they chart their own paths even in the face of stiff opposition. Uh, and, and because he writes books about the things that work, you know, these things generally work, right? And there was absolutely stiff opposition to people in the financial world who were making predictions in the early 2000s that the housing market was going to crash because they were saying this market is built upon masses and masses and masses and masses of adjustable rate mortgages given out to people who won't be able to afford to pay them when they adjust. So in several years, all these things are going to kick over and these people won't be able to pay them but nobody wanted to listen to them right because at the time they were saying this it was good times it was good times the housing market was booming the financial markets were booming so it was you know it was like they were speaking these words into the void and people ignored them many people mocked them until they were proven correct there's a challenge of belief And honestly, sometimes we don't want to hear it, right? We really don't want to hear it because we fear that it is going to impact so many of the things that we hold dear in our own lives and in this world. And we want to control those things. We want to continue to control those things. We don't want to give those things over to Jesus. We want to have things that we hold over uh, to ourselves because it is true that Jesus claim sovereignty over what we do with our bodies. It is true that Jesus claims sovereignty over what we do with the resources in this world that he has given to us. It is true that Jesus claims sovereignty over our time. So indeed, there is a challenge of belief. But we also see in this passage a challenge to believe. After many of the disciples, the small d disciples, walked away from Jesus, he turned around to his 12, his hand-picked 12 disciples slash apostles, and he looked at them and he said, what about you guys? Do you want to go his way as well? And if you're familiar at all with the Bible or with the other Gospels, you know who's going to answer the question, right? It's Peter. Peter's always answering. He's always first in line. And so Peter, always first to speak up, says this. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now these are powerful words. 
These are, in fact, true words. These are words that if I had been, you know, if I had a group of 12 disciples and I had been spending my time teaching them and one of my disciples said this back to me, I would have said, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard. You are so right. Gold star Peter. But this is weird, okay? This is very weird because Jesus does not do that. This is different from Peter's confession in another place that's recorded in other Gospels. Peter makes this this grand confession with all of this true stuff. And Jesus says, a little bit unimpressed, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Uh, It kind of takes the kind of pops the balloon a little bit right in this as John makes his own commentary on these words Jesus is referring to his future betrayal by Judas Iscariot why does he respond this way why doesn't he just jump up and down and celebrate Peter's words why doesn't he say my work is done here you know and and and, and kind of walk off and retire I think there's a couple of things going on here uh, that Jesus knows that that we do not until it's recorded here The first is about our wayward faith, and the second is about our steadfast Savior. In the challenge to believe, there is the factor of our wayward faith. Peter's representative here, but all of the disciples are complicit. You can think about this just for a second. Think about where we are in the book of John, if you've been here through this sermon series. Nothing really hard has happened to them yet. Nothing super hard has happened to them yet in their life of following Jesus. In fact, some cool things have happened to them. They were at a wedding where Jesus turned water into wine. That was awesome. They did get confused about why Jesus was talking to a Samaritan woman at a well and counseled him against it, but it wasn't dangerous for them, right? Uh, Just a day ago, they also had a great lunch, you know, with all those other people. When Jesus had the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 men plus everybody else, they saw him do something awesome. That's basically where we are, right, in this story. That is basically where we are. It hasn't been hard, but Jesus knows something that they don't know. That the time was coming when it would get hard. And the time came and was coming when they would walk away from him. Judas did betray Jesus to the authorities. Peter explicitly denied even knowing Jesus on the night that Jesus was arrested. When Jesus was arrested, even though Peter walked and followed him ultimately to deny him, all of the other ten disciples, they ran the other way and they hid because they were scared for their lives. It gets hard. So it is with you and me. I think this morning some of you may be stressed, may even be a little bit in despair because your life with Christ, your faith waxes and wanes. Maybe you're harboring doubt in your heart uh, about the gospel, about Jesus, and, and you're scared to tell anybody about that. Maybe there have been times, maybe even recently, at the time of testing and at the time of courage, at the time where it was time for you to stand up and, and, and stand for Jesus and embrace him in the face of opposition. Maybe you didn't do it. And maybe you beat yourself up and just are are crushing yourself with guilt. And maybe feel like God's abandoning you and is going to walk away from you because you were not faithful to him in that moment. 
Sometimes Jesus asks us, do you want to go away as well? And the truth is, is that when things are going well in our lives and when things are smooth, we might say the same thing Peter said, of course not. Where else are we going to go? Only you have the words of eternal life and we believe that you're the Holy One of God. But when we're in the crucible, when things are hard, when we feel like we're the only one and when we are all alone, well, maybe we're a little bit more like Peter. Maybe we're a little bit more like the other disciples and we want to run and we want to hide instead of facing those consequences. But there is really, really good news here. It is this. It's not about us. At the end of the day, it is ultimately not about you or me because walking with us, alongside us, in the midst of our wayward faith is a steadfast Savior, a steadfast Savior. Think about this. Jesus did not give up on Peter. He didn't give up on Peter at this, at this confession. You know, Jesus makes this confession of faith, and Jesus doesn't say, bingo, you got it. That's the whole life. Jesus knew things were going to happen, right? He didn't give up with him at his time of confession. He did not give up with him after Peter denied him. He met him on the shore, cooked him breakfast ate with him, restored him. Jesus did not give up on the other 10 remaining disciples who all ran away and went and hid. He went looking for them after his resurrection. He sought them out. He found them. And he commissioned them to be his ambassadors in the world. The story of Peter's journey with Jesus did not end with his profession of faith. It did not end with his denial. Why? Because Jesus was committed to him. Jesus was committed to him. Remember, he's already said it. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast away. So it is with you. Maybe you are discouraged in your walk with Jesus. Maybe you find yourself really ambivalent today about your walk with Jesus. Maybe you're just kind of feeling a little blah, you know, about your walk with Jesus. Like, is this worth it? I mean, like, what's the deal here? Well, even no matter where it is that you are with him, you can be encouraged that God is at work, that your story is not yet fully written. I know a lot of you worry about your children. Do you know how I know that a lot of you worry about your children? Well, not only do you tell me, I worry about my children. We're all the same, right? Our kids face so many pressures in this world, and it is so heart-wrenching, isn't it, to watch them struggle to watch them struggle in their faith, to watch them wrestle with it. It may keep you up at night. It may make find my friends like on your home screen of your iPhone because you're just kind of like, where are they? What are they doing? You know, where are they right now? And, and you just may, it just, you just may be in, in, in distress because they're not where you want them to be with respect to their relationship with Christ. But you can have hope. The God who makes promises keeps promises and it is up to him. It's not up to you. I can't, no matter how many times I look at find my friends, I'm not going to influence anything in the lives and the hearts of my children, right? But God can. It's up to him. And there we can have great comfort. And I do want to remind again our children who are here and our students who are here something that, that Pastor John's been talking a lot about. Um, and it is this, 
to follow Jesus in this world, to follow Jesus in this world, to really follow Jesus in your school, to follow Jesus on your sports teams, to walk with Jesus in your group of friends, very often this is going to be a lonely path for you. I'm an ordained pastor. That means I took a vow. I took a lot of vows. One of the vows that I took is not to lie to you. I'm not going to lie to you. It is hard to follow Jesus in this world and in this culture that we live in. It really is hard. You're growing up in a culture where 30% of the people in our country profess no religious affiliation at all or say that religion or, or any faith commitment whatsoever plays zero part in any decisions that they make. And that number grows year over year over year over year. And here's the thing. A lot of those people who say that having some faith commitment plays zero part in the way that they make decisions occupy places of authority and power in institutions that are important in your life. They run or they teach at your school. They make decisions on who gets into college. They make decisions on what grades you're going to get on a paper that you write. They sit across the desk from you in an interview for a job. And they have some level of authority. They may be the one who decides what grade you get in a class. They may be decide whether or not you get a job. My point is that you are growing up um, now in a context that is much closer to the context of these original disciples where everything was working against them culturally. They did not have cultural power. Everything was working against them culturally. You're growing up in a context that is much more like that than when I was growing up in Jackson, Mississippi, where it wasn't that hard to be completely honest. There will be a cost to you following Jesus. And that cost may come in the form of standing by yourself and of being alone, being the only one. And I think in so many ways, honestly, I think that this is exactly what Jesus is trying. In all of chapter 6, this is exactly what Jesus is trying to impress upon us to be true. He's basically saying, look, if you want to hang around with me because you think that you know, hanging around with me is going to get all of the stuff that you want in this world, well, you're going to be disappointed because that's not my agenda. That's not why I came. That's not what I'm here to do. But if you want to have abundant life, if you want to have true life, if you want to have eternal life, then come and walk with me. But if you come and walk with me, you're going to walk the same journey that I walked, which is a hard journey, a sacrificial journey, and sometimes a very lonely journey. But Jesus will never leave you. Jesus will never forsake you because he is a steadfast Savior. I have a friend who lives in another state who... A couple of years ago, went through a situation where he felt, and really was, worldly, earthly speaking, very, very much alone. Essentially, he had gotten attacked and abandoned by a number of very powerful, very influential people um, who had a lot of control over his kind of earthly you know, situation. And 
He got attacked for standing for biblical fidelity and biblical faithfulness on, on some very important issues. And I don't know if you've ever been in that situation before where you've ever had really powerful people turn against you, people with earthly influence over your life, like they might decide whether you get paid that next month or not, that kind of thing. Or you're getting letters from lawyers that are very threatening, that sort of thing. It's not fun, you know. And when you are the sole target, you can definitely feel like you are very alone. Like there's one laser beam and it is pointed only at your head alone. And so my friend, in the very heat of this uh, situation, went out for a walk in the woods near his house. He would clear, clear his head. He needed to pray. He went to sing some hymns. You know, um, I, also, I actually recommend that if you're ever in a situation like this, go sing hymns. And if you need, don't want anybody to hear you, go into the woods and, and, sing, you know, and sing hymns. And as he was wandering in the woods... For the first and the only time in his life, he heard some words audibly. And these were the words that he heard. Christ is your life. Christ is your life. Now, this person is not like generally a charismatic person. He is not expecting to hear audible words. Nor does he or I believe that this is a normative experience in the life of the Christian. That, you know, that, that this is going to happen to everybody. But I don't doubt that it actually happened in this situation and at this time. Because the beauty of it is immense. To know that in the point of your highest testing, that Jesus is with you. That you are not alone. That Jesus walked that path of rejection before you're walking it. But that path of rejection ultimately led to his ascension, his exaltation, and his glory. And that you are on that path with him. You are not alone. If Christ is your life. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are a steadfast Savior. That though our faith waxes and wanes, and that we will have many struggles in this world... You are the same yesterday, today, and forever, and you will never leave or forsake us. We pray that we would grab hold of that. Maybe even this morning for the very first time, or maybe again because we need to hold tight to you. And we ask it in your precious name. Amen.